Welcome to Crime Brulee, the true crime podcast that serves up some of the most intriguing cases out there. If you're a true crime addict, it's a lot like gourmet food for thought. I'm your host, Kirsten Dorman, and I've been thinking long and hard about what case to cover for Crime Brulee's inaugural episode. That's when a case that happened only about 25 minutes away from where I'm sitting right now came to mind. Like most, this case is tragic. There's something about it, though, that encapsulates so much of what confuses and entrances us when we talk about true crime. Just like many cases that came before and after this one, we can try to gain a better perspective on what happened by starting where the perpetrator, victims, and survivors all did. At the beginning. On April 31st, 1961, Robert William Fisher was born to William Fisher and Jan Howell in Brooklyn, New York. The family would be completed with the births of his two younger sisters, and information surrounding the sisters is actually pretty difficult to come by, which really surprised me. The only thing that I could find, or the only name, was Carol Jackson. She seems to be the more public of the two sisters about what happened, and we'll actually come back to her later on. While looking into Robert's background, I didn't find any evidence to suggest that he had anything but a normal childhood. Except for one thing. William and Jan's divorce is the thing that comes up just about everywhere when you even glance at this case. Robert was about 15 when his parents officially divorced in 1976, and according to the multiple people who knew him, he was very deeply affected by it. This kind of thing isn't uncommon, though. We all know that divorce tends to disrupt a lot in a child's life, like their sense of self-esteem or even their general worldview. In some reading that I did on the subject, I even found that some of the reason for this can be that children are dependent by nature, and so to have a major source of security like their parents being together and acting like a unit removed from the equation of their living situation can be extremely difficult for them to deal with. Now, while we'll probably never know exactly how the, his state of mind was affected by his parents' divorce, it's clear that the change wasn't even remotely positive for Robert. Several people who knew Robert described him as repeatedly bringing up the divorce years after the fact, long enough afterward to where it was seen as a little strange or even obsessive. People close to him also said that Robert, on more than one occasion, would essentially say that death was better than divorce or that he would even commit suicide before getting one himself. Thankfully for Robert, though, his life seemed to be going on a much better track than that. He married a woman named Mary Cooper in 1987, and according to those who knew the couple, their union appeared to be a really happy one. Mary herself is described as being loving and so, so dedicated to her kids. I watched this documentary where they included a lot of clips of home video from the Fishers, and there's this one clip that they show where Mary's just given birth and she's holding her baby in her arms and just the look on her face and the look in her eyes when she's looking down at this baby, there's something that you almost can't describe about it. It's the kind of thing that makes you feel like, almost like you're going to cry watching because it's so pure and you just feel the love even through the screen. Um, 
And it's honestly the kind of thing that makes you well up a little bit when you're watching. I mean, I at least couldn't help it. And just in general, it's so clear that Mary cared a lot about the people in her life to me. You can tell that she was always the person that would be there for you or offer you somewhere to eat dinner and talk to you about whatever you were going through at the time. And that's how a lot of the people that knew her described her, which I think just makes her such a special person. One other notable thing about Mary is that she's also described a lot as being really dedicated to the church, which we can assume by church the people talking about her mean the Scottsdale Baptist Church, since that's where the Fisher family would often attend services. On April 27th, 1988, Mary and Robert welcomed Brittany Jean into the world. Brittany is described as being incredibly dedicated to her religion. And the home video that I've seen gives me the impression that Brittany was a very, very sweet girl. It was a little silly, and she always did the right thing to do, just because in her mind it was the thing to do. She was also really smart. When she was just 12, she was inducted into the Junior National Honor Society. Just two years later, on September 21st, 1990, Robert William Fisher Jr., or Bobby as everyone knew him, would complete the Fisher family. Even in pictures, Bobby's energy and his infectious smile just shine right through. You can see in his eyes, he's such a happy little boy. The mother of one of Bobby's friends actually tells a story about Bobby that I think gives the best sense of what an all-around adorable, just fun-loving little boy he was. Sunday afternoon a couple weeks ago and um, they played in the afternoon and it came time to get them back to church for bell choir and um, I said well boys we're in luck we've got the convertible and Bobby was just so excited and he said we've got to ride with the top down and I said are you guys sure as we're getting on the freeway I said are you sure it's going to be really windy and I'll go 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 it's okay and I'm not kidding, the whole way down to 101 until we exited on Thomas, those two had their hands up in the air, they were waving at people, and they laughed the whole way. There are so many snippets of home video which feature Robert being the perfect father. He laughs with his children as he tosses them up in the air, he plays with them, he just generally lavishes them with affection. It's really sweet to see, actually. Now, here's one of the things in this case that comes up in countless others. I've just described to you how loving and perfect this family seems. I mean, they go to church, mom and dad are deeply in love with each other, and the kids, and Robert is even a Navy veteran, a retired fireman, and a nurse on top of it all. So he's on top of everything, a really accomplished person. Unfortunately, though, I have to pull kind of a lemony snicket on you and tell you that things seemed perfect on the outside, but 
Nothing was as perfect as it seemed when it comes to the Fisher family, especially as you begin peeling back layers. The very same home video footage I was just talking about, for instance, also shows Robert sharply demanding that Mary film a certain way. He would command her to do certain things, like he'd say cut, or demand that she puts the camera away because he just doesn't feel like being filmed right now. And I mean, we all have days where we just don't feel like taking pictures or being on camera, but there was something about his tone of voice that, especially in hindsight, kind of puts me off. The home videos also show him instructing a young Brittany, she's like two or three at this point, to turn around and stand a certain way for the camera. It even shows him teaching both children, again, they're still very, very small, to march around like soldiers and say things like, better dead than red. The children, they're laughing and running around, like they're just playing, they're kids. But again, the feeling that I get from watching Robert on the tape, especially with the hindsight we have, knowing what we know about him now, I just kind of get the chills. Robert, as it turns out, is seriously controlling. Mary was expected to be a classic, obedient wife. Think 1950s, she's scrubbing the floor with a smile. A story that comes up in more than one source is how she wasn't allowed to do anything without her husband's permission, down to decorating the walls, but she was expected to be totally okay with it when Robert came home one day with a deer head to hang on the wall. And that's another thing about Robert that we look back on a little differently in hindsight. It's his passion for hunting. Robert, you see, is a super avid hunter, fisherman, and outdoorsman. All of these things seem like the perfect outlet to blow off steam for someone who used to be in an intense, super active work environment like being in the Navy or being a fireman. But according to some people who used to hunt with him, Robert tended to take it a little far. He seemed to actually enjoy killing the animals more than he did hunting them. And the former lead detective on the case described hearing stories of other hunters actually dissociating from Robert because hunting with him became unsafe. There was even an instance described where the group had been gutting an elk and one of the guys turns to see Robert just smearing its blood all over himself. I mean, come on, tell me that if you were on this trip, you wouldn't get totally creepy, kind of murdery vibes from turning around and all of a sudden seeing this guy that you're hunting with just all out smearing this elk blood all over himself. I mean, if nothing else, it's pretty gross. By this point, it's pretty safe to say that Robert himself is less than perfect. At least, not nearly as perfect as he might seem from the outside. Unfortunately, same thing goes for his marriage. For all of his worries and all of his controlling behavior, lording over Mary, and worrying about their marriage, Robert actually ended up cheating on her. And with his masseuse, of all people. So, about this masseuse. 
I don't have any source to point specifically to say that this is the reason he was going to one, but it seems like Robert was seeing her because of the issues that he was having with his back. He actually injured it when he was on the job as a firefighter, badly enough to where he needed surgery, and apparently he's never really recovered from the pain. Even after getting the surgery, he still walks around with an extremely straight posture and some people have described it as him kind of having his chest puffed out. Um, that apparently indicates that he still has a pretty bad back. So anyway, one thing led to another with this masseuse and they actually ended up sleeping together, but Robert didn't confess to the affair because he felt guilty about it. The reason it came out was because Robert contracted a UTI from her. I mean, seriously? I mean, it's one thing to cheat on your loving, devoted wife, um, but to not even have the courtesy of doing it with protection? Come on, dude. This guy must have seriously thought he was invincible. So much so, in fact, that after he confided in their priest about it and the priest advised him to come clean, he did so. With seemingly no qualms about it. Unsurprisingly, Mary was pretty upset, and I think that's putting it lightly. She was already getting tired of being the type of wife who, when her husband says jump, says how high. And some of her friends actually have said that she was mentioning or contemplating divorce a lot of the time. Robert, let's remember, was so averse to divorce that he would do just about anything to avoid it. At first, this only meant marriage counseling through the church, and for a while, it actually seemed to be going pretty well. Again, people that knew Mary and Robert, they said, you know, there was some issues with their relationship, things weren't all roses and daisies, but nobody thought anything was seriously, seriously wrong. They fought a lot, but it seemed like they were working things out between themselves. However, Robert's deeply rooted issues related to marriage and divorce, or what many say could have led him to take much more drastic measures than counseling to make sure that Mary would always be his wife. Uh, yes, I just heard like a, like an 
It's April 10th, 2001. It's safe to say that those who lived through this day will never forget it, especially those who lived within a half-mile radius of the Fisher home and were physically shaken by the explosion that went off early that morning. A natural gas line had been opened up, a candle had been placed in the center of a hallway, and the house's interior had been doused in an accelerant, likely gasoline. At about 8.42 a.m., several calls poured into 911. Panicked neighbors frantically described a fire that had already engulfed one house and looked like it could spread to others. The Fisher home had exploded, with Mary, Brittany, and Bobby all inside. As gruesome and as sad as it is to say, though, the three would never even have realized that their house had exploded because they were all presumably deceased already. As investigators would later find out upon examination of their remains, Mary, Brittany, and Bobby were all brutally murdered, likely before the candle had even been lit. I want to note that I won't be going into brutal detail. But if you're sensitive to the discussion of fatal wounds and things of that nature, I would consider skipping ahead about a minute or so. It won't take long to describe the Fisher's injuries, and I feel it's important to the case, which is why I'm doing it at all. But I understand if some of you listening would rather not think about it. So I'll give you a moment to skip ahead. And for those of you still here... All I can really say is brace yourselves. Both Brittany and Bobby had their throats cut. Some sources say very deeply, almost to the point of decapitation even, which I personally think makes the most sense because of the fact that they were so severely burned by the time their bodies could be recovered that for there to be evidence of the wounds, they would actually need to be really, really deep or have made a mark on bone. Similarly, Mary also had her throat cut. What made her stand out from the children, though, was the fact that she also had been shot in the head, presumably after her throat was cut. One investigator referred to this shot as possibly being a screw you to her. While we can tell that their wounds were fatal, we unfortunately have no idea what order the victims were killed in or when. This is important because it not only helps establish whether there's premeditation on the perpetrator's part, and in fact, a lot of what muddies the timeline of what happened to Mary, Brittany, and Bobby is the fact that all of the evidence, including their bodies, had either been turned to ash or so badly burned that little or nothing could be gleaned from it. While investigators sifted through the remains of the Fisher house, they noticed some things were missing. Amongst the sizable collection of firearms in the home, one gun was unaccounted for. Mary's Toyota 4Runner was missing from the driveway, while Robert's diesel truck was still exactly where it was supposed to be. Most importantly, however, Robert himself was nowhere to be found. What would be uncovered in the days, weeks, and months to follow opened up a side of this case that nobody suspected was there, 
and that still baffles investigators, armchair detectives, and people just like you and me, even to this day. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the first course of the Robert Fisher case. If this episode has whetted your appetite, please show Crime Brulee support by favoriting, sharing, or showing your appreciation however you'd like. If you're particularly hungry for more, be sure to follow the show on Instagram at Crime Brulee Podcast. All lowercase, no spaces, that's Crime Brulee Podcast. Make sure you keep up to date with us to see some photos related to today's episode and also to stay updated on what we might be serving up next. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope to see you here again next time for the second course of the Robert Fisher case. Just make sure you bring your appetite. Goodbye.